begin in Psalm chapter 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, and they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Today, toward the evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? And your fury according to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Let us pray together before we enter God's word. Lord, I pray as we dig into this passage together that you would be glorified and honored. Father, that my speech um, would be pleasing in your sight and that people's ears and hearts would be receptive to what you have to say to us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we really begin, I'd like to preface and say, I come to you as someone who deserves the wrath of God. I come to you as someone who deserves the depths of hell itself, but yet God in his grace and mercy alone chose to save me. So I come to you today simply as a wretch performing the Lord's service by his infinite grace and mercy. And so with that in mind, I'm going to give you a few purpose statements of why I've come here today with this particular passage in Psalm chapter 90. Number one, I want to eradicate, demolish, and bury into the pit of hell every conception of God contrary to the word of God. Number two, I want to set us up in the right mindset of who God is, according to his, not according to our opinion, not according to politics, not according to our own word or whatever, according to the word of God. I want us to set up in the right mindset of who God is according to his word. And I want to do this related to God's eternity and God's closeness. Number three, I want to encourage you with the reality that we have infinite joy in Christ. I want to encourage you with the reality that we have infinite joy in Christ. And as a subset of that, I want to set your affections, that is your emotions, on fire for the glory of Christ in Him 
alone. So number one, I'm going to eradicate, demolish, and bury into the pit of hell every wrongful conception we have of God. And I want to set us up in the right mindset of who God is according to his word related to that of his eternity and his closeness. And I want to encourage you with the reality that we have infinite joy in Jesus Christ alone. Nobody else but Jesus Christ alone. And I want to set your affections on fire for the glory of Christ. And so with that in mind, I want to talk about first, what does it mean for God to be eternal? And then next I want to talk about what does it mean for God to be close? Because those seem like a blatant contradiction, don't we? God's eternity, the fact he exists beyond space and time, but then God's closeness, the fact that he exists in space and time with us. And so when we think about God's eternity, this is what God's eternity, for God to be eternal doesn't simply mean for him to have like this endless amount of time, although that's true. But it means God's not subject to time. He's not limited by time. In fact, we find out he's the creator of time. He sustains time. He creates it for his good pleasure and he uses us, uses it to bring us through the passage of time. That's what it means for God to be eternal, for him to exist beyond time itself. But yet at the same time, even though God is lofty, high, and transcendent, he exists beyond time, he still chooses out of his own good pleasure to be with us. And my friends, that is an act of sheer mercy and grace that none of us in this room, myself the preacher included, deserve whatsoever. And so we're talking about the eternality of God and his closeness. And so I want to get into the passage of Psalm chapter 90. And in Psalm chapter 90, basically what Moses is doing is he's praying. He's, a, he's an intercessor, right? He's an intermediary on behalf of the people of God. And what he's doing is he's praying to God. He's lamenting. This is a lament. It's not just something that's supposed to be said kind of in this monotone voice. It's something that is to be cried out and prayed to God. And here Moses appeals to God's eternity and God's closeness. And with the people of Israel, he give a little bit of historical context. Basically what's happening is the Israelites have been going through these 40 years of wandering. And so this is the context of Psalm chapter 90. Moses is praying on behalf of the people of God, appealing to God's eternity and to his closeness amidst a great amount of suffering. So this psalm is occurring within a context of great suffering and great turmoil and great chaos. I mean, if you just go back and read through the 40 years of the wilderness, you will see that. You will see turmoil. You will see chaos. You will see all those things. And you will also see rebellion. And so it's not a bunch of people who have all their act together praying this prayer. No, it's people who are suffering, who are lamenting from their sin, and are praying to God alone. And so this sort of sets the context, if you will, of Psalm chapter 90. And this is what the passage is going to teach for us this morning is that given the preciousness of time, in light of the contrast between God's eternity and man's temporality, Moses prays to God and asks him to teach them to live with urgency and appeals to the mercy and favor of God alone that can make us joyful and confirm us in the work of our hands. I'm going to say that again. Given the preciousness of time, in light of the contrast between God's eternity and man's temporality, that is man's finiteness, man's fading awayness, if you will. Moses prays to God and asks him to teach them to live with urgency and appeals to his grace and mercy and favor in order that they would be joyful, 
joyful, inexpressible, and confirmed in their present work. And so that's what the passage is teaching for us this morning. And so we're going to see in the passage that verses 1 through 2 is going to teach us about the eternality of God and His closeness. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to prove to you from Scripture why God is eternal. And I'll prove to you from Scripture that God is also still yet close with us. And in verses 3 through 6, we're going to talk about God's eternity, man's fleeting, finite, time-bound nature. And then in verses 7 through 11, we're going to talk about the fateness of creaturehood in light of the fury and presence of God. And then in verse number 12, we're going to see an application given the preciousness of time in light of our fleeting existence and God's eternity. And then lastly, we're going to see in verses 13 through 17, pleading to the God who is there. That despite the fact he's lofty, he's high, he's transcendent, he's eternal, God still chooses to be close with us. And so here in verses 13 and 17, we're going to see pleading to the God who is there. And so with that in mind, we're going to look first at verses 1 through 2. And in verses 1 through 2, Moses says, Lord. Now let's stop right there. Lord comes from a Hebrew word, Adonai. And Adonai is a very specific term used to mean the majesty of God over all creation. It's a reference to his might. And this is what you notice with the psalmist. Today in our age, would you say that we just kind of say, yeah, God, you know, God's working in my life. And that's all well and good. But you ever notice in our culture, we're not specific enough. Who do we mean? Think about the numerous amount, the infinite amount of gods that exist today in our universe uh, with regard to belief. I think as Christians, this is a call for us to be very specific in our language as Christians. Maybe instead of just saying God, which we should, and that's all, that's all well and good, maybe we should say the triune God. The God who is Trinity. The God who exists both three and one. That's the God we worship. Any other God is, is, is worthy of hell itself. And so he uses a very specific term, Adonai, the fact that the Lord is over all creation, and this is a reference also to his might. And he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, this is a past tense. He says, Lord, yes, you have been our dwelling place, and you have proved so in all generations before. But he does it with anticipation that it's definitely happening right now, and that it's for sure going to happen later on. So even though he's using past tense right here, he also means that with the assurance that there's going to be a present focus and yet a future result of the fact that God is still going to be with the future generation. And we've seen that up until this day, have we not? And so then in verse number two, it said, Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, mountains were considered the most permanent, most ancient part of um, of Israel. And so when they referred to mountains, they're really talking about the beginning of time. I think other than maybe stars, they saw the mountains as the most permanent and most ancient thing in existence. And so basically when he says, before the mountains were born, he's talking about before creation, before time. And he proves that and says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And though everlasting does mean an infinite amount of duration and time, when he says everlasting to everlasting, he's basically talking about the transcendence of time that God has over creation. But yet at the same time in verse 1, what does it say? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. So though God is transcendent and above time itself, he's able to dwell with us. My friends, that's a, that's a truth that's unfathomable, isn't it? And before I go to the scriptures that sort of prove the eternality of God and the closeness of God, I just want to preface and say this. At the end of the day, that is when everything is said and done, 
there's going to be mystery in the Christian religion. And honestly, it's mystery. That's, that's what makes Christianity beautiful. True biblical, not mysticism as the medieval times and so forth, but I'm saying true biblical mystery declares that God at the end of the day is unfathomable and incomprehensible. And it also says and declares that God cannot be contained in our minds. I want to worship a God that cannot be contained in our minds, but rather should be worshipped with our minds. So Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Think about that. The eternal God himself is a dwelling place for his people. And so I want to start by proving from Scripture the eternity of God and then his closeness. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I'm pretty sure that's self-explanatory. When it says heavens and earth, it's actually talking about time and space. So it's saying, in the beginning, God himself created the heavens and the earth. And this is a reference basically to the fact that God is before time itself. And then Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 where it says, and it's through Christ that the worlds remain. It could literally be said, through whom he framed the ages. It is through Christ that God formed and framed the ages. And to frame the ages, that is to, to frame temporal succession or uh, moment by moment, you know, here, 1201, 1202, 1203, 1204. To even frame a passage of time to do that, you have to be before all that. And that's exactly, I think, what Hebrews 1 um, uh, verse 2 is saying. And then Exodus 3.14, we know this, where, where Moses is talking uh, to Yahweh in the burning bush, and he says, Thus you shall say, go to save the sons of Israel. I am has sent you. And I am is a reference to uh, the pre-existence of God, basically saying he is from all eternity. He's just always been. There wasn't a time he, he came to an existence. He's just always been before all eternity. God, again, is beyond time. And then, of course, Jesus Christ in John chapter 8, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus Christ himself refers to himself as one who existed before time. And to exist before time is to transcend time and therefore to be the creator of time itself. Now I want you to turn me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to be flipping our Bibles quite a few times this morning. But it's all an effort to prove to you from Scripture that God is eternal and that God is yet it's still close. And why we must, as Christians, affirm both is because Scripture affirms both. We can't rationalize one side or the other and say God's just close, but he's not transcendent. Or God's just transcendent, he's not close. No, God is both transcendent above time and also close with us. So if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And ages here, again, is not referring to just um, a sheer amount of time, basically, but it's, it's referring to the passage of time in which events take place. And so the ages here is referring to a passage of time in which events take place. And it's saying that God is even before that passage of time is able to Exists. And so in this sense, God is before time. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. You might say, well, Andrew, first of all, it says predestined. Doesn't predestined presuppose there was a past before all that? Well, as temporal creatures, we have to say before time. Referring to eternity, we have to say it's before time. I know I'm using the word before, and that's technically a, a temporal term. 
But at the end of the day, that's all you can say. You know, it's an unfathomable truth. This is the closest you can possibly get to saying God is eternal, is to say that he is before all time. And so that's what it's saying, predestined before the ages to our glory. I want you to turn to John chapter 7, verse 5. 17, excuse me. This is the high priestly pair of Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 5. John 17, verse 5, Jesus is crying out to the Father, praying on behalf of everyone there, saying, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, before time even existed, Christ had the glory with the Father. And that is also, my friends, an unfathomable truth that is worthy of our praise. And by the way, these, these truths should not confound us unto confusion because when you think about a lot of these things, it can be very, very confusing. But it shouldn't confound us unto confusion. It should confound us unto exuberant praise and worship to glory in God himself. Uh, turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to start at verse 1, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, going into verse 2. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And the actual translation from the original language is actually before the ages. Once again, you see the aspect of before the ages. Now go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, verse 9. We're going to see the exact same thing, except it's translated the way I was talking about. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. I'm going to start at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to the work of our hands, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Think about this. You were saved. You were predestined. You were granted this in Christ before all time. That is, when, when time didn't even exist, when there was no temporal succession, when there wasn't even a 1201, 1202, 1203, 1204, 1205, before all of that from all eternity it was granted you in Christ Jesus for you to be saved. And that's something we had a glory in, my friends. It was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Go to Jude 25. And by Jude 25, I mean verse 25. I'm going to start at verse 24. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy 
To the only God our Savior, through Christ Jesus, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. So think about this. Before the world was, the glory of God was there. The dominion, the power, the authority, all that was already the Lord's before all time, from all eternity. Now and forever. Amen. And so as you can see here from Scripture, it's very clear when you look at the entire corpus of Scripture is that God Himself is eternal, transcendent, above time itself. But yet we're going to see that God is still also close with us. If you will, turn to Psalm chapter 84, verse 11. Psalm chapter 84, verse 11. For the Lord our God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory, and no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. So we notice here is God's closeness, the fact that He is both a sun and shield. He's the one who gives grace. He's the one who gives glory. And no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly and in the truth. Turn to Psalm chapter 91. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And what you see in Psalm chapter 91, it's going to refer to God as the Most High, but yet it's going to show that God is also a dwelling place. He is close. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, I will say to the Lord, my refuge in my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is the shield and bulwark. Okay, think about this. The God who is from all eternity, the one who is before all time itself. Once again, 1201, 1202. 1203, before any of that could ever exist, it was granted you in Christ Jesus that you would be saved. He's the most high. That same God is your shield and bulwark. That same God who's transcendent above time is your deliverer. That God who's transcendent above time is the one in whom you put your trust. That God who is above time is the one who is the shadow that you hide in. The God who is transcendent above time is the one whose faithfulness toward you never ends. And that God who is above time is the one in whom you seek refuge and who is your fortress. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse, verses 7 through 10. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 through 10. Starting in verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel 
For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the people of his eye. It's the Most High who gives us our inheritance and gives us salvation. So the same God who's transcendent above time, the same God who's transcendent above time is still the one who encircles us, who cares for us, who guards us. We are his portion. He gives us the inheritance. I want to stop right here and explain something a little bit more. So related to God's eternity, we don't want to think about it as, so if you take, let's say this is past, this is present, and this is future. Okay? And here's the passage of time going through. Us as temporal creatures, finite creatures, we sort of just kind of walk like this through the passage of time. Past, present, and future. Whereas God, God sees everything all at once. He sees past, present, and future as one big eternal now. He doesn't even have to scan. He just sees it all at once. Think about how unfathomable that is. Does that not show the mystery of who God is? Does that not show him as big? You see, this is what I would do. I want to cast down every misconception we have a God because I think a lot of us think of God more as just another space-time fact. He's someone who exists within the universe. No, God is beyond the universe. And even if you think there's a multiverse, God is beyond the multiverse. He's beyond the multiverse. He exists outside of space-time itself, but yet he chooses to be close with his people. He cares for us. He guards us. He encircles us. And by His Spirit, we can find Him. And He can communicate with us through His Word. Think about that. Someone who's transcendent beyond time, seeing both past, present, and future as one big, vivid, eternal now is someone who can come down to His creation and communicate with us. And we're able to think His thoughts after Him on a creaturely level for His glory. That is a truth that is worth so much gold. And just reflecting on that truth alone should give us all the more reason to put aside everything of the world and to think God's thoughts alone and to worship Him and to live for His glory. And how does God communicate with us the most? That is preeminently. We talked about revelation. Revelation is a big one but I would say even a bigger, the incarnation of Christ. Think about John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, talking about Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Jesus Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. So there it is that Jesus is fully divine. This is the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet in John 1, 14 it says, And then the Word dwelt among us. The fact that God can come down and dwell with us is, is an unfathomable truth, but it's something we affirm because Scripture teaches it. And my friends, it gives us all the more reason to go and worship God with all that we have and to live for Him. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27. And this is going to put both together, both the eternity of God and His closeness. And in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, we're going to see this put together in verse 
27 of chapter 33 of Deuteronomy. And in verse 27 it says, The eternal God, that is the God who exists beyond space-time itself, is a dwelling place. That is, though God is transcendent above all time itself, God is still one who chooses to dwell with us, to be with us. My friends, that's something we always ought to reflect on as, as Christians. And so once again, God's eternity and God's closeness are things we ought to reflect upon. And notice, this is the beginning of Moses' prayer, going back to Psalm chapter 90, if you will. And in Psalm chapter 90, again, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. That is, he is close in all generations. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth, even from everlasting to everlasting. That is his eternity. You are God. So I hope that shows you as Moses is praying on behalf of the people of Israel. And by the way, Moses was just a mediator during that time. Think about it. As New Testament believers, every single one of us individually has access to the throne of grace through the one great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so we are able to offer our petitions to God. And here in verses 1 through 2, we can appeal to God as one who is eternal, but yet one who chooses to be close with us. So once again, the God who sees past, present, future as one big, vivid, eternal now is the same God who chose to come in His Son to save us from our sin and from the hell that we so rightly deserve. All of us, the preacher included. Now we're going to turn to verses 3 through 6. We're going to move on. So we see in verse 3, he says, still appealing. Remember, this is a prayer, okay? This isn't some uh, stoic, uh, emotionless speech. This is a prayer that Moses offers to God. He says, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. So what does that mean? He turns man back into dust. What does that mean we are? I'd say dust. I think Josh was telling me this morning, sinful dust, right? We are just a bunch of sinful dust that sort of just live our existence. And if we aren't living for the Lord, it's worthless. It means nothing. We owe all of our existence to Him. And that's a hard thing to admit. When we see an infinitely holy God, it's hard to admit that we're just sinful dust. But it's only when you start that you admit, to, you admit that you have your sinful dust that you can truly come to glorify God. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah sees uh, the holiness of God himself, and in light of seeing the holiness of God, he sees how much unholiness remains in him. And so the more we see God for who he is, the more we realize our sinfulness, myself included. And so in verses 3 through 6, we see God's eternity. We see man's fleeting, finite, time-bound nature. Notice the expression in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight, are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. And by the way, when it means they fall asleep, it just means to sleep the sleep of death. It's referring to death. So they, sweep, they swept them away like a flood, and they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers Away. So once again, a 4,000 years in your sight is like yesterday when it passes by. When you have past, present, future, God sees it all as one big, vivid, eternal now. It's not like he sees things in sections, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. No, he sees it all as once, equally vividly. I don't know how that even works. 
But that's what scripture teaches, and that's what we must affirm as Christians. And once again, at the end of the day, there's going to be biblical mystery. That is the fact of the, the declaration that God is ultimately unfathomable, and that God cannot be contained in our minds, but rather must be worshipped with our minds. And so in verse 5, we see the fleeting nature of man's time-bound nature in light of God's eternity, right? So in light of the fact that God sees past, present, future as one big, vivid, eternal now, think about this. You have swept them away like a flood. They sleep the sleep of death. In the morning they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. So our fadingness, right? And the fact that we're fading rather quickly um, should give us all the more reason to live for the glory of God. And that's what we're going to see once we get to verse 12. Um, but I want you actually to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 8 and 9. Second Peter chapter three verses eight and nine. Second Peter three verses eight and nine. Peter, uh, writing um, to the churches of Asia Minor, says, "But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved." That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Okay, first of all, I have to say this. There's a lot of people who use this verse to try to prove that the days in Genesis can be more than one literal 24-hour day. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage, in fact, is talking about the eternity of God. Because notice, people will stop here and say, Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And I'm like, well, it also says in a thousand years like one day. And so it sort of just cancels it out. Uh, so that point is invalid. Um, so verse 9 goes on and says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Because we count sl slowness in what? 1201, 1202, 1203, 1204, 12. We think in terms of temporal succession, right? Moment by moment activity. So the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to uh, repentance. And obviously there's a big issue right there related um, to uh, salvation and so forth. My point is to show you that this passage is teaching uh, that God's patient toward everybody, or at least to uh, the elect, those who God will eventually call to himself, is not slow in the way we count slowness because God sees both past, present, and future all at once as big, one big eternal now. Uh, so in this sense, God doesn't count slowness the way we count it. Um, moment-by-moment moment basis, 1201, 1202, 1203, 1204, 1205, uh, lunch, dinner, morning, so forth, you know. Uh, so the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. We count slowness a different way because we're temporal, finite, fleeting, fading creatures, whereas God is eternal above time itself and acts such a way that's beyond our scope of knowledge. Um, at the end of the day, we affirm it. We don't not affirm it just because we can't understand it. I'd say that's arrogance of the highest level for us to do that, to say, okay, since we can't contain God in our minds, um, let's just say he doesn't exist. But it was so funny, and even asking the question, does God exist, it already assumes that God exists because without God, nothing in this space-time world could make sense at all. Whatsoever. Um, so the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count 
slowness. We count slowness differently, once again, because we're temporal, finite, fleeting, fading creatures. Uh, but the way God sees it, past, present, future, as one big, vivid, eternal now. And ultimately, that is unfathomable to our minds. And remember, we're called not to contain God in our minds completely, as the rationalists do, but we're to worship God with our minds under a true biblical rationality. All right, we're going to move on. Go back to Psalm chapter 90. We're going to go to verses 7 through 11. And remember, in verses 7 through 11, we're going to see the faintness of creaturehood in light of the fury and presence of God. The faintness of creaturehood in light of the fury and presence of God. And two aspects we're going to see from this is the inescapability of the presence and fury of God. That is the fact you cannot escape the, the fury and presence of God. And then number two, the incomprehensibility of God's wrath. That is the fact that God's wrath at the end of the day is actually unfathomable. I'm going to show you how that's um, preeminently shown at the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn actually to Psalm 139 verses 1 through 8. Before you go, excuse me, before you go, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 a little bit. And then I'm going to go to that as sort of to back up what I'm saying here. So once again, I'm going through the scriptures and I'm proving to you from scripture elsewhere that it's the whole counsel of God that testifies to the things I'm talking about. So in verse 7 it says, For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. Well, one looks no further than what? The wilderness days, 40 years. Well, all you saw was rebellion, wrath, repentance, sometimes no repentance, just continuing wrath, right? Uh, you see the rebellion at Korah. What happens? Uh, Korah starts rebellion and so forth. And then what does God do? He consumes the people with his wrath, right? Or think of the golden calf incident and the wrath that took place there. Or even the wrath that occurred on Moses after the people asked and begged uh, for water. And Moses just got really mad. And so he disobeyed the Lord's instructions. So what do you do? He knocked it twice. And what happened? Water came out. He thought, okay, I did it okay. Um, but at the end of the day, he found out that he disobeyed the Lord's instructions because he kind of did that with anger, didn't he? He knocked the rock twice, water came out, um, and it was shown to the people that it was disobedience. And so God poured out his wrath upon Moses in the sense that he wasn't even able to go into the promised land. And so this, remember, this is Moses praying this. So he obviously has these things in mind that are happening where he says, For we have been consumed by your wrath, uh, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. And then in verse 8 it says, uh, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Think about this. You have placed our iniquities, our, that's all of us here in this room, every single iniquity you've ever committed, even the secret sins that have happened in the presence of God that we don't know about to each other, keeping each other accountable, but God knows about because we're keeping it silent. Right? It's the secret sins we commit that God also knows. And by the way, that's, a, that's an axe to the heart. Um, this reminds me of just how sinful of a human being I still am, despite the new nature uh, that I possess. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter um, 39, verse 11. Psalm chapter 39, verse 11. This is a psalm of David. Uh, think about David. David was an adulterer and he, was a, he, he killed a man. Uh, but in Psalm 51, he gave a great repentance to God. Um, but he reflects and he says this. 
With reproves you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. And that's what we are. We are, we are mere breaths in God's sight. In light of his eternity and our finiteness, our fading awayness, we recognize, my friends, that we are just a mere breath, quickly fading out of existence. Go on to Psalm chapter 39. I want you to actually look at verses 4 through 6. Same chapter, just verses 4 through 6. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Ready? Let me know how transient I am. Transient just means fading away, how short of an existence I have, right? So let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best. Think about this. Surely every man at his best. Best, the most successful you could possibly be, the most luxury you could possibly have at your best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. So in light of reflecting upon the eternity of God and therefore the preciousness of time, given just how finite, transient, and fading away we are, we recognize that even at our best, we are a mere breath. And by the way, that's exactly, if you go back to Psalm chapter 90, that's exactly what we see in verse 10. Uh, In verse 10, this is what we see. uh, Psalm chapter 90, verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Now 70, uh, the number 7 is considered a very uh, prime number for the Hebrews and the Israelites. And to have 70 years was actually a sign of great prosperity and luxury. And so basically what he's saying here is that to have 70 years or even due to strength 80, right, um, is to say that he's very much so blessed. And so using the number 7 is a reference to a, a, kind, a kind of life, a type of life. Yes, it's the number of years, but it's the kind of life that person's had. Let's say it's the most luxurious, um, the best you could possibly uh, wish for. But at the end of the day, it's nothing. Right, it says, or if due to strength 80 years, what does it say? Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. It says, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. For soon it is gone and we fly away. My friends, when we all hit the grave, do we get to take anything with us? Zero. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? Do you want to leave a legacy that says, I never put my faith in Jesus Christ and I had all this and that? Or do you want to leave a legacy that says, I was faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was one who deserved the wrath of God but was saved by God's infinite grace and mercy. That's what we ought to strive for, my friends. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. My friends, this is the fleeting nature of existence. It's very short. Life is very short in light of God's eternity, contrasted with our finiteness and transientness. And it gives us all the more reason to live for the glory of God. So it's in light of all this that in verse 12, we're going to see Moses making an application 
Before we do that, I do want to make a note of what we see in verse 11. Okay, it says this. So in light of everything that's already been said, he says, I should say he prays, he laments to God. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Okay, so at the end of the day, the wrath of God is unfathomable to our minds. And again, it's another aspect of biblical mystery, right? Which declares that God cannot be contained in our minds at the end of the day. And so we think about the wrath of God. Yes, we can talk about the 40 years in the wilderness, but how much more do we know this, knowing the fact that Jesus Christ, all right, think about this. Jesus Christ came down from outside of space-time. Well, he still exists in space-time, but he came down as man, right? Took upon a finite nature as well, all right? Lived the life, only life worth living, right? And this was a life of suffering, right? And he performed all these miracles, he did all these things, but then he went to the cross. Now, I want you to ask a question. Yes, the cross saved you, but is it the physical death of Jesus Christ that saves you? Or is it the wrath of God poured upon Christ for all our iniquities and sins that really saved you? Like, I think it's all well and good to talk about the fact that Christ died for you, but what do we really mean by the death of Christ? How often in our language do we skip talking about the wrath of God poured out upon Christ for all our sins? I want you to think about this. Think about each of you individually. All the hell any of you ever deserved eternally, okay? Anyone who would believe in Christ all that hell and wrath you deserved, here's the cross, in one moment the cross, all of that wrath, the eternal hell that every single one of us in this room deserved was poured out upon Jesus Christ for our sins. The wrath of God was poured out upon Christ for every single sin any of us commit now, will commit, or anyone from the past committed. So every single individual person in this room who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ or will come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This includes all past saints, by the way, too, who've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. All that wrath, all of us deserved in a single moment of the cross was poured out upon Jesus Christ. All of that. The eternal hell. Think about it. Eternal hell. Everlasting hell. Each of us individually. All that wrath we deserved was poured out upon Jesus Christ for our iniquities and sins. But then three days later, what happens? He rises from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father so that one day when we stand before the Father, the Father will no longer see that sin or eternal hell you deserve. He will see the fact that Christ took upon the eternal hell for us. He took upon the wrath for us. And so the Father will look at us and he will usher us into heaven because he will not see us clothed with any good works because that's filthy rags in God's sight. Rather, he will see the righteousness of Christ alone. And when the Father sees the righteousness of Christ alone, you will be ushered into the kingdom of heaven and you will live eternally with him. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you. So think about all the fear that is due to God, which is so much given the fact that past, present, future is seen by him as one big, vivid, eternal now. How much reverential awe and fear should that strike in our hearts? Think about all that that everyone deserves, your fury according to the fear that is due you. It's all that fury that God must pour out for his justice and for his glory, but in his infinite grace and mercy, he decided to save us lowly, wretched sinners from the wrath to come because Christ came and took upon it himself.
So my friends, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face the fact that God's wrath is inescapable, the inescapability of the presence and fury of God. And the fury of God will be poured out upon you if you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ, right? And I'm not using this as some uh, scare tactic as many, many people will do. I'm saying this because this is a reality. This is the truth. And when you receive Jesus Christ by faith, you will receive infinite joy in your hearts. And we're going to see that here later on in the passage. So we see the inescapability of the presence and fury of God and the incomprehensibility of God's wrath. And we see that preeminently in the cross. Now we're going to go to verse 12. In verse 12, we see an application given the preciousness of time in light of our fleeting existence and God's eternity. I'm going to say it again. In verse 12, we see an application that is everything that Moses has already prayed. He's using all of that and he's bringing it to this one point of verse 12 and he's applying everything that's already been said. Okay, so it's an application given the preciousness of time and in light of our fleeting existence and God's eternity. And so notice what he says. He says, so, or therefore, so, teach us. Remember, he's, he's talking to God. So he's saying, God, please teach us. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Now I want you to notice this. When it says teach us, he's asking God. This has to be an act of God. In order for you to number your days, in order for you to live the life worth living, you, has to, you have to ask God to do it. It is an act of God alone that helps us to number our days to make the most of our time in this world. It has to be an act of God. And so number our days. What exactly does that mean? I want to point, point you to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you want, go ahead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, uh, Paul, after talking about all this doctrine uh, beforehand, he gets into chapter 5, and in verse uh, 15 he says this, Therefore, do not walk as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are... Are evil. So that's what it means to number your days. It means to make the most of your time here on earth, given the preciousness of time and given your fleeting, finite human existence. And so I want to make a few points here, and these are really important. So um, if maybe some of you have been tuned out, because this is a really, really um, profound and hefty topic to deal with, and I know it can really confuse our minds, but note, it should not confound us into confusion it can found us into exuberant praise and worship. And so if, if you haven't uh, paid attention some before, these are some of the most important things you can take away from the sermon right now in this moment. These are two things I'm going to say. Number one, the fact of temporality should exude an illicit urgency in our lives. So in other words, in light of God's eternity, our temporalness, that should exude an illicit urgency in our lives to make the most of our times because the days are evil. So the fact of temporality should exude and elicit urgency. Number two, and this sort of explains and brings that further, um, it says, in other words, because we are fading and fading quickly, this gives us all the more reason to recognize the preciousness of time and to use it for God's kingdom and glory. I'm going to say it again. In other words, because we are fading and fading quickly, this gives us all the more reason to recognize the preciousness of time and to use it for God's kingdom and glory. So number one, the fact of temporality should exude and elicit urgency in our lives. 
Or in other words, because we are fading and fading quickly, this gives us all the more reason to recognize the preciousness of time and to use it for God's kingdom and his glory. Uh, now, what does it look like? So if you're asking God to teach us, how does God teach us? Well, he teaches us through his word. And so I'm going to throw you through the whole corpus of scripture. And uh, I got 22 points of practical application, but I think I'm going to only go through about 10 because uh, I think time is fleeting, isn't it, huh? <laughs> so, uh, so with that in mind, uh, get your Bibles ready and we're going to go through this together. So this is the way God teaches us through his word. Number one, first and foremost, reflect upon God's eternity and closeness. We see this Deuteronomy chapter, well, first of all, Psalm chapter 90. but We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 33 where it says the eternal God is a dwelling place. So first and foremost, it's a reflection of God's eternality and closeness. This is how God teaches us to number our days correctly when we reflect upon the fact that existence is fleeting, right? And so in light of that, we see the preciousness of time, and therefore I want to glorify God uh, to the utmost. Number two, this is really important, repentance of folly. This is how God teaches us. In Job chapter 42, verse 5, go ahead and turn there. Job chapter 42, verse 5. So those familiar with the book of Job, Job went through a lot of suffering as, as a righteous man. Um, but at the end of the day, this is, this is what he says to God, and this is something we ought to take away. Um, in Job chapter 42, verse 5, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. I retract anything I ever did, that is, and I repent in dust and ashes. So that's something we can do. How does God teach us to number our days so that we may present to him a heart of wisdom? He does it by us retracting all of our sin and repenting in dust and ashes, admitting that we are some finite, fleeting, sinful dust. Number three, go ahead and turn here too. Hatred for sin, rejoicing in God's light, and thankfulness for the holiness of God. Go to Psalm chapter 97, verses 10 through 12. And so, you know, all these points that I have, I'm actually going to send a list uh, to Pastor Josh, and I'm going to have him pass that list on uh, to you all so you can look at these points of application from Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, of how God can teach us to number our days. So Psalm chapter 97, verses 10 through 12. Hate evil, you who love the world, the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones, he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. So notice here in the passage, hatred for sin, rejoicing in God's light, thankfulness for the holiness of God. We're going to go to number four. Reverential awe and faithful obedience. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. So if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, basically what Solomon is doing, he's reflecting upon, again, what Psalm 90 is doing, the fleeting aspect of human existence, the fact that we're all just quickly fading away. And so at the end of this book, after everything was said and done, after everything he went through, recognizing that time is fleeting. And by the way, he learned from experience. 
at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14, he concludes by saying this. And this is again how God can teach us to number our days. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every man. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So the conclusion, fear God, keep his commandments. Have a reverential awe and faithful obedience for the Lord. Number five, this one's very important as well. Heightened affections for God and people. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 37 through 39. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. Once again, this is heightened affections for God and people. This is Jesus. Jesus says this. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So number five, heightened affections for God and his people. When we truly love God, when we truly have our affections set on for the glory of Christ, we will inevitably come to love the people around us and have community with one another. Uh, Luke 9.23, this is number six. Luke 9.23. And this is submission to the lordship of Christ. Luke 9.23. This is one of my, this is probably a top five favorite in my book, um, Luke nine twenty three, And Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So when we fall under the lordship of Christ, this means to follow him, to deny yourself every single day. Not in the sense of deprecating yourself, like, wow, I really just hate myself. No, it's to hate your sin. It's to deny your old self, that old self which craved for things um, that just didn't satisfy your soul. And you're called then to take up your cross daily, not to wear your necklace, but to bear the cross as Christ did going through suffering in the first century. So that's what it means to submit to lordship of Christ. And this is God, again, teaching us to number our days through his word, is doing these things by his grace and mercy. Number eight, be missionally focused. Go to Acts chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Missionally focused. Acts chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or epochs when the Father is fixed for his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. So here, both in Ferdinand, right? Both in Ferdinand, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria, uh, Huntingburg, other, other places of that nature, maybe the rest of the state, and even the remotest part of the earth uh, where you guys went with your, um, with your mission. And so I would encourage you all to do that, to be missionally focused, so to make the most of your time um, going on a mission trip. Mission trip doesn't mean overseas always. It can mean right here in your community. Uh, it can mean across the country. Or it can mean across the world. And so you've got to be missionally focused. And that's how God teaches us to number our days. This could be one aspect of that. 
We'll do it. Number nine, habitual renewal of the mind. Go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So Paul in chapter 1 through 11 is talking about all this doctrine. So Paul is talking about who God is. And in light of talking about who God is, he then comes here and talks about um, what we should do then as Christians. What are then the practical application of that? Uh, Paul says to the church at Rome, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is everything that proceeded before in chapters 1 through 11, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is a day-by-day process of renewing your mind, not conforming to this world, all the worldly flesh and desires, but thinking God's thoughts after him on a creaturely level for his glory and so it's a habitual renewal of the mind and then just real quick Romans chapter 13 uh, uh, verse 14 also the same practical application Paul here is just extending it he says but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ when we choose to come and follow him we will inevitably put off all those worldly lusts Uh, that seek to entice us. So it's a putting on of Christ that is uh, God teaching us to number our days through that. Here's another one. Thinking and living for eternity. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So though now you're hidden with Christ in his sufferings, you will be revealed with him in glory. So keep thinking on the things above, thinking and living for uh, eternity. And so I'm going to print off and give you the list of that as, as we go on. But I want to finish up in Psalm chapter 90, verses 13 through 17. And so in light of everything uh, that uh, Moses has said, in verses 1 through 11, he talks about all, all the attributes of God, the wrath of God, the eternity of God, the fact that God is close, the fact that God is present, all these things about God. And then verse 12, he gives this practical application, right? And then in verses 13 through 17, he pleads to the God he knows is there. He pleads to the God he knows is there. And so we see two things, appealing to the loving kindness of God, the only possibility for exuberant joy. And we see appealing to the favor of God, the only means of a confirmation of work in our lives. And so we're going to look at that. Verse 13, it says, Do return, O Lord. He's asking God to return. Not his presence per se, but his loving kindness. He says, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. His loving kindness is his mercy that he's extend everlastingly to his people. That we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Notice what he does. He appeals to the mercy of God first so that then they can sing for joy and be glad 
all of our days. And he says, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. That is, all the days we have seen evil, all the days that we've suffered, please, Lord, that many days in return, please visit us with your loving kindness and your mercy. Lord, please do that. And then we see in verses 16 and 17, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So when Moses is reflecting upon the fact that God is eternal, he sees past, present, future as one vivid eternal now. And in light of that, we see our fleeting finite existence. We see the preciousness of time. And given the preciousness of time and how it's just, it's just fleeting, right? We want to use that time to the utmost. And so we're asking God, Lord, please by your favor, confirm the work we're doing right now on earth. My friend, is your work for Jesus Christ or is your work for yourself? Is your work even for your, just your family? Like that's all well and good, your friends and family and work, but it has to first and foremost be for God. Because if it's first and foremost for God, you're doing what you are for your family, you're doing what you are for your work, for God himself. It all, it all comes down to that. That's what's really, really uh, important, my friends. And so I just want to wrap all this up and say, given the preciousness of time, and in light of the contrast of God's eternity and man's temporality, that is our fadingness, Moses prays to God and asks him to teach them to live with urgency and appeals to his mercy and favor in order that they would be joyful and confirmed in this present work. Friends, this is urgent. Our existence is fleeting. And I would just say, if you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart, he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus says, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, I might give you rest. If you come to Christ right now, he will give you rest. If it's not in this life of suffering, it will be in eternal glory. I promise you that. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ right now, you will be delivered from the wrath of God and you will receive and be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And if that's the case, my friends, when you stand before the Father one day, you will be ushered into eternal glory because he will no longer see your sin or your good works. He will see the righteousness of Christ alone. If that's the case, my friends, we will live for him for all eternity. That's what's worth living for. Lord, please confirm the work of our hands. Satisfy us with your loving kindness in order that we would receive exuberant joy. To have infinite joy in this life is so key, but we can only have it through Christ. It's only through Christ. It's all for Him. And so going back, I, I hope, my friends, that I've eradicated, demolished, and buried into the pit of hell every wrongful conception we have of God, at least those we've talked about. I hope, my friends, I've set you in the right mindset of who God is according to his word that related to his eternity and closeness. My friends, I pray that I've encouraged you with the reality that we as Christians and those who put their faith in Christ have infinite joy in him. And I pray, my friends, that this has set your affections on fire for the glory of Christ. That's all that matters. The glory of the triune God. That's what this world is about. This has nothing to do with your worship needs. This has nothing to do with us. This has everything to do with the glory of God and that alone. Are you willing to live for him by his grace and mercy today? And so if you, ever, if you want to come talk to me about anything, I, I welcome you to do that. 
Um, but I, I'm going to close this out in prayer now. So if you would, please bow your heads with me. And I am going to pray Psalm 90 um, because this is a prayer that Moses offers to God as a lament. So let us lament together. May we cry out to God in Psalm chapter 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, and they sleep the sleep of death. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? and your fury according to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Father, please, by your infinite grace and mercy, if there's someone here who has not received Christ, may they come forward by your grace and mercy that they may receive your son's righteousness that one day before judgment... They would not be judged on their sin, but upon the righteousness in which they now possess. Father, I pray that in light of seeing your eternal aspects, Lord, and given our finiteness and therefore the preciousness of time, may we use it to the utmost. Lord, please teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Lord, thank you for all that you've done in our lives. And Father, I pray you would be with us and confirm the work of our hands. Yes, Lord confirm the work of our hands in Jesus name. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed the sermon from guest preacher Andrew Bell. Tune in again next week as we return to God's word. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.